0: Welcome to another founder to founder interview from Gun.io, your source for hiring world class tech talent. Today, Gun.io's CEO and co founder, Teja Yanamandra, sits down with Jeremy Snyder, CEO and founder of Firetail, a company focused on API security that provides application layer
1: visibility and blocking of malicious API calls. Okay, here's Teja.
0: So let's start with like, what, tell us about your background. Um, like, where, where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Um, who were you like as a child? And like, how are you now an entrepreneur? <laughs> well, as a child, I was a nomad because that's what my upbringing
1: was like. I, uh, my father was American. He was an army doctor. My mother's from Finland. Um, I spent periods of my childhood in um, Finland, Germany. Uh, I was an exchange student in France. And of course, in the U.S., we also lived in, I think, four states by the time I graduated high school. Um, So normal childhood for me was moving every two to three years, which I found super exciting, but is not everybody's cup of tea, I know, uh, because it also means new friendships and new relationships and starting over at a new school, new teachers, all of the stuff that, uh, you know, can be challenging for kids to go through and, and pretty disruptive. And I certainly didn't appreciate logistically how difficult it was for my parents to manage that with, you know, packing all the stuff and unpacking and making the decisions about what you keep and what you sell and what you let go of. So that was my upbringing. It, uh, for me, like I said, was a lot of fun, very exciting because I really like exploring new places and meeting new people and so on. Where it maybe was a challenge was I also didn't really have a super strong sense of direction when I finished high school as to what to do next because the that was always decided for me up until that point in time. You know, it was always going to be, hey, in two years or three years or whatever, there will be something new. You don't have a say in the matter. So when I actually had to make that decision for the first time myself, I didn't make the right decisions. Mm. I went to a university for a year that turned out to be completely not the mental space that I was in. So right. I had my worst academic year ever, my freshman year of undergrad. And I actually ended up dropping out after that year. Um, I worked over the course of that year to save up money. The next year I went on this kind of, I would almost call it like an educational retreat program. I would, It was a school in the middle of a forest in Finland. We studied 4 days a week we worked one day a week um doing chores around the the school it's not a college or a university it's just a school um you know and that was everything from washing the dishes to cleaning the buildings to chopping wood and picking crops and um or you know preparing vegetables for preservation over the long finished winter um you know we did all of that stuff And that was a very formative experience for me. I I learned kind of the value of hard work and all the things that have to go into just like making a place run Mm. and keeping like a community of people going. So did that, that kind of caused me to, I'd say like mature and grow up a little bit. Mm. Then I felt more of a sense of direction. So I applied to a couple of universities, got into a few of them. I'd actually go back and study to prepare. In Finland, you take entrance exams. It's not like in the US where you take kind of the SAT at the end of high school. Mm. In Finland, you apply to a university, you apply to a specific degree program. So in my case, I applied to chemical engineering. And then you may or may not get invited to go take the entrance exams. And then you show up and really whether you get into the school or not is dependent on your performance on that day. And it's... I mean, luckily enough, I got in, I did that for a year and a half, two years before realizing, okay, like I've grown up. I understand how to now like prioritize studying and being a student and taking care of myself and all that good stuff. Um, but actually chemistry was, is not the thing that I want to do. So I kind of learned almost like one step of the way, uh, like how to, how to kind of grow up and become an adult really. And uh, so I actually ended up dropping out of school one more time um, and then went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill to do a degree. Um, I had accumulated some credit here and there. I didn't get a lot of credit for the work that I had done in Finland. Uh, They didn't know how to transfer. They didn't know how to kind of like line up the courses to give me credit for who knows what. So after uh, two and a half, three years in Finland, I had nine credit hours given to me by the university. I had a little bit of AP credit from my high school days and they're like, all right, this is what you got. And I really overloaded heavily. I took summer school and I finished a degree in computational linguistics in a year and a half. I used to take uh, language classes to boost my GPA because I'd know I'd have hard classes that were going to, you know, I was probably going to get like a B minus in so I took intensive Portuguese, Norwegian, Spanish, and maybe I still took a French class or two as well because I knew I'd get A's in those and you know wanted to kind of balance things out.
0: But that that was that was my childhood. That's so fast. It's so funny. My language classes were the worst scoring classes like throughout my academic career. A yeah. lot <laughs> to do. Yeah. It's just a function of upbringing, you know.
1: I was just exposed yeah. to a lot of foreign languages, you know having a Finnish mother and an American father living in Germany near the French border where I was hearing all this stuff and picking it up. So it was, for me, it was really more just a question of exposure and upbringing that laid the foundation. So I think a lot of it is really set in those
0: early childhood years. Do you keep up with language practice? Do you try to make an attempt to to learn and acquire like new languages or practice the ones that you already know? It's more
1: practicing the ones that I already know. I have done a little bit of studies into like Italian. I tried Chinese for a year. Yep. Weirdly, out of all the languages I've ever studied, that's the one where I did terrible. Um, and I understand it because it's a very different language. The tonal system, uh, all of that is, it. That, that tripped me up more than anything else. Um, but yeah, I definitely try to maintain. I have lost, uh, I used to be pretty conversational in Swedish and Norwegian. I can't really do those much anymore. Um, but I've kept
0: up like five to six, pretty reasonably. Yeah, I actually, I lived in China for like two years, and so um, I studied Chinese in school, and it was it was pretty challenging. Um, but it's one of for me, at least, it, it was one of those languages that like practical usage of the language is very different than the academic study of the language because the way that a university can score your proficiency is like they basically have you memorize characters. Um, totally you know, but using it in the streets of Shanghai or wherever yeah. is like, yeah, yeah, yeah. you're two beers deep. You're talking to people in the street. It's, it's actually quite easy. You know, um, the, yeah. the grammatical convention is the same as in English. It's like subject verb object. And, you know, yeah. even if you mess up the tones, people still know what you're saying. You know? <laughs> yeah, 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 totally.
1: and, You know, and it's not like anybody on the streets of Shanghai is going to pull out like a piece of paper and quiz you on characters, right? Like, I I always find it kind of funny that aside from the Portuguese class that I took my last year at UNC, all language instruction is like paper and book driven, but language use is just conversational, right? Like you're mostly just trying to communicate, convey a point. And that's, that's like almost never what you learn in class. I I think it's something kind of fundamentally broken in language instruction.
0: I, I think I know your point of view on this, but I'll ask it anyway. Like, do you think that studying languages the way that we do it, let's say in the U.S., is that, is that similar? Number one, I guess it's a two part question. Is that similar to the way that other countries learn language? And then number two, is it like an effective way to acquire new languages?
1: So on number one, I can only speak to the places where I've lived and studied languages. Um, So I've done language classes in US, Finland, Germany, and France from times that I've been in school in these places. And yes, it is very similar. Um, Again, it's like books, paper, written primarily, not so much spoken. Mm -hmm. When I studied Chinese in Singapore, that was like private tutor, you know, one-on-one kind of thing. So that was a little bit different. Um, But number two, is it effective? No. For exactly the reasons we just talked about, like, what are you trying to do? I don't, I don't know too many people whose primary motivation for learning a language is to get fluent in written communication, right? Like nobody says like, oh, I want to be able to write Spanish. No, you want to be able to communicate, right? So that you can, you know, go to Mexico on vacation and communicate with people and order good food and have good experiences, maybe with a local tour guide. Right. Like that's your main motivation. Or like maybe for work purposes, I need to be able to explain API security to somebody in Portuguese in Brazil. Right. Like that's a much more compelling use case than, I don't know, writing a letter to somebody or something (laughs) like that. And like maybe it all developed out of pen pal friendships in the 50s and 60s. Who knows? But it's like, I don't think it's effective.
0: No. Yeah. Do you think your facility with languages equipped you well to like work in the technology industry and like basically, you know, be in product, be in engineering, because effectively you have to learn like new modes of thinking and being funny enough, like
1: I I thought that that would be the case. And I started Mm -hmm. studying programming. I did, you know, I don't know, four semesters of computer science and I did courses on visual basic and C++. And I thought that, you know, knowing different languages with different grammatical structures and so on would prepare right. me for logic syntax. And exactly. No, nope. turns out I'm a terrible programmer. And <coughs> um, so like I got one programming job early in my career and I failed at it and they reassigned me and they're like, listen, you know, Jeremy, you're smart. Whatever. We like you. We like having you with the company. Uh, you're not going to be on the development team now. We're growing as a company. Do you want to do IT and cybersecurity? Like that's the the path that's available to you. So, uh, in a way, I'm actually like a failed developer. But the other, the other part of the question is like, what I do think it prepared me for outside of programming is it prepared me to learn concepts quickly. And, um, and so to like as technology changes, I, I can't do the specifics very well, but I understand architectures and structures and you know data objects because that has parallels. Um, but uh, but actual programming, not nah, I, I was terrible.
0: You know, we we sort of make up myths to like explain these things to ourselves, right? So I'm I'm curious. Yeah. I, I'm curious, like, what is your understanding of yourself as to why maybe like you had such a you have such a facility with languages but maybe just lack the interest in programming. I I actually think interest is the key word there. Yeah. And like,
1: one of the things, like I enjoy communicating with people. I enjoy learning from their experiences and whatnot, but that's a communication with an animate object at the other end who's providing value to the conversation, right? Yeah. When you're writing <laughs> code, like, I mean, yeah, you know, like unless you're writing a chat bot and even then maybe not, but it's like a one-way communication. What's interesting about having to learn a way to do a one-way communication? Like I think in my lizard brain, there just wasn't something that clicked that made me want to do it or, or to
0: get better at it. No, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I mean, we run a business that caters to programmers. And so I did not like start as a programmer, but it's something that like, I felt like, you know, um, there's a Chinese saying, like it's like when in Rome do as Romans do, like it's a way to understand the culture. So I was like, okay, even if I'm on the sales and the marketing side of the business, I should actually understand some of the day to day of a programmer. And I did for a little bit, but like you, I had to exert like a massive amount of discipline such that I would basically procrastinate doing it until I had like five coffees and like i forced myself to stay at my desk to work to work through to build some stupid app that has no actual business value just to like teach myself how to do it and it just became like why am i why am i doing this like i'm doing it to respect the half the community we serve but like practically i'm i'm marshalling all of my discipline resources to just learn like this little thing. Yeah. So I'm, I'm right there with you. You know, if I had a job as a programmer, I would be fired within like a week for sure. Cause they'd be like, yeah. here's this thing yeah. It should take you an hour to it take me a week, you know? So <laughs> <laughs> look,
1: I mean, maybe with chat GPT nowadays, you'd get it done, but you know, that would be my only option at this point.
0: No. So that, that's actually true. Like, I will say that, like, I find out like you, I, I'm super interested in like the adjacent areas around, let's say computer science, like around math theory and around like, um, you know, let's say, um, data science as it were. And I think chat GPT like, really levels you up so you can make like these, you know, Um, regression models using chat gpt that would take you hours to do you can just make it in a sentence so that's actually quite cool um i'm I'm pretty pumped with that maybe it's because it feels like i'm talking to a person like you so yeah maybe (laughs) maybe maybe. so so you have so you kind of pivoted from programming to security is that like a right the right way to say it what yeah i mean i IT and security.
1: I mean, in, in those days, in most companies, those were not separate functions. Right. So, you know, you you fixed printers and you fought viruses,
0: um, you know. But yeah, that, that was the pivot. How did Firetail come to be? Like, what kind of took you to starting a company? Um, based on your, like, childhood and your background, like, I could tell you have, like, sort of an adventurous bent. Is that fair to say? So it's probably natural outcome, you know, at yeah. some point. Yeah. Uh, but I'm just yeah. curious about the path.
1: Yeah, I mean, wh- and without going through like every step along the way, because that'll get tedious. Um, I-, I did a couple startups early in my career, I definitely got bit by the startup. bug, And then, yeah. you know, I joined a larger company. At one point, I was like, Yeah, no, I'm 100% a startup guy at heart. Um, not to say that I don't think I can do okay inside a larger company. But I'll definitely have a creative drive to, you know, build something, have an adventure. Um, I, a hundred percent, somebody asked me once, like, what have you, what have you always tried to maximize in your career? And some people it's the money, some people it's like the position, they're more interested in progression up the corporate ladder. Hmm. For me, it's always been maximizing the adventure. Hmm. And um, so that's that I'd like, I a hundred percent agree with what you said about that, but yeah, I did a couple startups. startups. Uh, so one, two startups, then a video game company, which was also a startup. And we raised a bunch of money and built a game that was not very good. Um, and that crashed and burned after about four years. Um, the kind of the pivot into like the path that I've been on for the last 10 years was at that point in time, I had gone through like 13-ish years, I want to say of being in IT and security, like hands-on, day-to-day, building you know, systems, operations, et cetera, and um, had done the 3 a.m. trip to the data center, had done the carry-a-pager, be-on-call 24 hours a day to keep servers online, all that fun stuff. Then there was this little startup called AWS that had just opened up, and they were recruiting people who had a background in you know it and infrastructure to get into this whole cloud thing and it so happened you know like the my company was just shutting down and they were recruiting and i went through the interview process and um got the job and that kind of like put me into the cloud side of things which was by the way like such an eye-opening experience because you you First of all, I don't think people who are like coming into IT nowadays realize how good they have it. (laughs) Like the the pain that we went through, both mental, but also sometimes physical, like unless you've lifted these like, you know, crazy heavy servers and put them in these metal racks for days on end, cutting up your fingers on, you know, screws and sharp edges and things like that. Like there's some physical pain as well as as mental. Um, It's so easy nowadays, right? Like, oh, I need infrastructure to run an app or whatever. Like five clicks, three minutes, I've got it, right? Um, So that was the eye-opening side of it is like, there is so much potential. This gives you so much flexibility. So I kind of fell in, in love with the technology and the possibilities of what you could do with it. So I've kind of stayed in that ecosystem ever since. And about seven years ago, I got pulled much more into the security direction of things uh, on the cloud side. Um, I joined a little uh, five-person or six-person company at the time um, called Divi Cloud. We were making an early cloud security software product, and uh, we evolved it over time. That company doubled year over year for four years running. Wow. We got acquired in 2020. Um, Yeah, it was a great ride. I mean, and and the team that I worked with over there, we had some amazing people. We had some really amazing customers that we got to work with. That was, um, honestly, we were all pretty lucky to live through that experience. But there was a couple moments along the way when I started to see changes in the technology patterns and how customers were building things on top of cloud platforms that led me to start thinking about APIs much more deeply Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's really like kind of the, the path that it was. Um, I, you know, we got acquired in 2020, two months into lockdown and, um, uh, and so it wasn't maybe the best time to go start something new. Also, we had some obligation to the company that acquired us to stay on board for a period of time. So worked through that. And then in late 2021, um, left that organization and started thinking about what's next and I, went back to those observations that I'd had previously about like, hey, there's a shift going on towards you know service oriented architecture, microservices, API driven um, development patterns, etc. And then I started thinking, you know with my security hat on, started thinking about like, oh, are there risks here that people don't know that they're taking on when they go down this this path and building applications this way? And so my co-founder and I, we did actually did a lot of research into the space before coming up. Well, like we knew it was a problem, but we did a lot of research into what exactly the problem is. Where are the risks? How do you try to defend against them and so on? Um, and we came up with an initial kind of thesis around how we wanted to tackle the problem and, uh, and, you know, put together a concept around building a company, started talking to some people recruited, um, six design partners who, you know, committed to working with us through that journey. Not all of them have fallen through on that commitment, but such is life, uh, always yep. one, one lesson, always recruit way more design partners than you actually need, because <laughs> some of them will get busy and not actually be able to follow through on that. But yeah, that, that was the beginning of fire
0: So I guess the, the move to microservices and service oriented architecture created the need and like um, this sort of set of new technology patterns created the need for like a new way to look at security. Um, Is that fair to say? Yeah. What like created the, I don't know, ability or created the movement towards like microservices? Because I I would just see like microservices are now a thing, but I don't quite understand like what, what was the use case or business need that, I don't know, precipitated the invention of microservices. And that is like a design pattern. Let's take like a common example. Like, so, let's say you're ordering food uh, from like a mobile
1: delivery app, right? DoorDash, Uber Eats, whatever, right? Think about all the things that go into that transaction, right? So first, you're just opening the app. The, and the app actually, by the way, like almost nothing happens in the app on your phone, which I think right. like maybe a lot of people kind of academically know, but you don't think about. Right. So the first thing that actually happens is like, it checks, is there a, like a saved token that says, Hey, this is Jeremy. Uh, and then it set, it fetches your geo coordinates right. that the geo coordinates actually come from the, well, a combination of the phone plus the carrier, right? But you get your, your latitude and your longitude. Um, those two things are then sent to the back end, by the way, over an API. And that says like, Oh, okay. Jeremy is in this location. We know it's Jeremy. If we don't have a stored credential, we're actually going to, or or maybe if we see this for the first time in another country, we're going to prompt for a reauthentication to verify that it's Jeremy or whatever. But the geolocation will also fetch a list of services available and restaurants available, mm. and then you're going to like go through the restaurant list and the menus. You're going to select your items, you know, put them in your cart, and then you're going to go check out. And when you go check out, a couple things are happening on the back end. The order is being sent to the restaurant and the restaurant is then confirming the order. Plus, let's say an estimated delivery time or an estimated uh, completion time for the order. Like when is the food going to be ready for pickup? Then a delivery driver is contacted or a delivery fleet service or whatever it is to say like, hey, it's this restaurant and it's you know 6.25 PM is the pickup time. And then by the way, also the payment is sent to the credit card company. Okay, so like all of that complexity is happening for just, you know, Jeremy ordering a bowl of faux soup, right? Right, right. Um the, the need for microservices is kind of twofold. One is, um, are you going to build all of that functionality yourself inside your application? Maybe yes, but more likely no. Just take payment processing as an example. The ability to take and process credit card payments is kind of annoying to build. Mm. Right. You have to go through all of this compliance work and crazy Mm. security designs. You have to get approved by a regulatory compliance authority, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So nobody wants to do that. So what do they do instead? They incorporate a third party service like Stripe or Mm. Checkout.com or whatever it is. So there's one instance where you just have the question of like, are you going to build all the functionality yourself? And if not, then you have kind of a service to service communication pattern that you need to enable. So that's one use case. Second use case around why you need microservices or why it's become a popular thing is, think about all those other steps, loading the menus, contacting the drivers, uh, contacting the restaurants, coordinating the order with the restaurants, et cetera. You may have a surge in traffic or you may have a surge in usage for any one part of the application at a time. And so are you going to scale the entire application to meet the maximum utilization of, let's say, just menu browsing, or are you going to separate them so that, like, when there is a huge number of logon requests because of whatever reason, it's noon and everybody in the office buildings in Manhattan is is trying to order, you can process all the logons without having to um, without having to hyperscale the backend for the menu fetching.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So wherever the majority of the action is, or the majority of kind of the processing bottleneck is you can scale that component independently of the others that are not overburdened. Mm. That's the other main driving force behind this kind of uh, microservice architecture. You just alleviate whichever bottleneck uh, separately from the others by being able to scale each service component individually. Does that make sense?
0: Yes. Gotcha. Okay. That makes a ton of sense. And thank you for going through that uh, for a layman such as myself. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no worries. Uh, Okay, that makes a ton of sense. And so I guess that introduces a security need because these applications are so tied into third-party applications and that, I guess, that information flow needs to be done securely. Yeah, I mean, just, again, that same example. You're coordinating, I mean, maybe
1: your home address isn't that sensitive to you, but maybe it is, Right. right? And so, like, you're sending your personally identifiable information, PII, as we call it, Like you're sending that to a third party, maybe multiple third parties, by the way. You're also sending like payment credentials or a request for payment, you know, your credit card details like so you do have sensitive information crossing between party A, party B. Um, And so, yeah, you want to secure those connections. And by the way, there's also just the fact that the app itself is communicating to the back end over an API. What if I don't use the app, but I just try to talk to the API directly? Because hackers are not going to use your app to try to hack you. They're right. going to go straight to your back end and try to like access that. What might they be able to do? They might be able to gain access to my account, order a bunch of food on my dime if I have a saved credit card on file, for instance. right? So there's all kinds of ways that the systems can be abused directly through access to the APIs as well. So it's not only like the communication from that app to the third parties it uses, But it's actually like hackers trying to go directly to the service itself, directly to the API uh, of that service to abuse it as well. How did you conceive of the name Uh, Firetail? Actually, one of our investors suggested it to us. We originally incorporated with like a placeholder name that we knew was not very good. We just needed to get a company up and running, you know, incorporate, et cetera, et cetera. And we played around, we like... I think my co-founder and I we must have collectively spent 20 hours on our own brainstorming names and playing around with um on uh, there's this one domain registrar uh that has a a tool where you can do like beast mode name search and you throw <laughs> in like it, it's pretty awesome actually you throw in a bunch of keywords and it tries yep. to look for available domain names for you that's cool. Um and we played around with that tool for too many hours a lot of fun but not super productive in the end and then literally one of our investors was like I like a super neutral brand name like firetail because like you don't know what direction the technology is going to go based on what customers uh needs are so like mm. you want something that's like cool catchy easy to pronounce and remember mm. but is also not hyper specific to a particular technology And, Mm. you know, and then like, is not like a used brand name somewhere else. And he literally threw that name out and we went searching. We're like, actually, yeah, it's pretty good. And it just stuck with us. And we did a trademark search. That was all clear. We, we actually ended up having to buy firetale.io from somebody else who was squatting on it. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: That's a thing. Yeah, for sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. But but was was that an easy transaction or was that kind of a pain? Uh, no, it was a, it was relatively
1: easy because it was done through a broker service that specializes in this. They know how to coordinate buyer and seller. They know they knew how to manage escrow. Um, yeah, so sup- that was super painless, actually, very straightforward. Kind of- From the time that we
0: decided and agreed to the price, it was less than twenty four hours. Have you thought about moving to a .com at any point ever? Or <laughs> yeah, but they want like ten times more than we paid for the .io, and we're like,
1: like, do we really need it? Because yeah. .io is kind of trendy now. Yeah. I don't
0: know. It, we have thought about it, yeah, and like I don't know if you're like on the engineering side, you know, of the house. .io is like pretty common, I think, for a lot of yeah. domains, you know. Yeah, um, we yeah. run into some issues when I'm like gun. io, and they're like dot .com, and I'm like, no, no, just dot .io. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, have you
1: guys? Thought, like, I I imagine gun. com would be insanely expensive, and it's probably like
0: owned and and actually run. But yeah, yeah, it's it's. So I think actually the last time that I checked, it's like a. Gun magazine or something like this. I mean, you could imagine that that's the yeah, case. I sure. occasionally on yeah. LinkedIn I get people being like, it "Support the Second Amendment." And my LinkedIn, you know, because they just they like do a LinkedIn search for like, you know, okay, who's in the firearm industry? So that's always funny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But, but yeah, I think it's prohibitively expensive. I, I, I tell like. Talk to him. That's like a Series B issue. That's like not a yeah. That's not that's not a today thing. That's like a. Later. We said exactly the same, and
1: we're seed <laughs> funded only. And we were like, yeah, even you know, if and when we raise it, we're lucky enough to raise a Series A. We're like, we're, it's still not a priority at
0: Series A. Um, yeah, yeah, so for sure, for sure. Well, okay, so in 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 maximizing adventure, um how, how are you thinking about like building your company, like um, over the next, let's say, decade. Like, what you know, what are some of your ambitions? How are you thinking about, you know, writ large, like financing strategy, all that stuff? That's a big question. It's funny yep. because you know we're,
1: we're we're seed stage, right? And we had an initial thesis, and we went out with our design partners and with some new customers that we were talking to. And we kind of invalidated about half of our initial thesis and revalidated the other half of it. But then we also learned the things that we didn't even have in our thesis that were real pain points. And so we've ended up having to like kind of really pivot a lot of the technology approach that we had and the technology strategy that we had. Mm. And that's been a journey that's been occupying so much of my mind and energy and, and not just mine, but our whole team over the last 9 months that I don't know that we have like a 10 year like strategy because it's it's been so consuming that like I have a 2 to 3 year technology vision based on all the things that we've learned like that for sure and financing wise like we've looked at you know what would a series A look like what would a series B look like what would be the valuations and then what would be like the the goals that you're trying to achieve with the company, given that kind of trajectory, that's all relatively straightforward. And I would honestly say that, like, I don't think that we're trying to do this differently than the typical kind of, you know, enterprise B2B startup, or enterprise focused B2B startup, right? Like, there, there I think we're really like, we're not reinventing the wheel or anything like that. The technology side, that's a bigger vision that we have. And the problems that we're looking at solving around APIs are a much bigger concern. I give you one example right now, like, and this has been a very, very hot topic in a lot of our conversations recently, um, which is, all right, so there's all this AI hitting the market right now and LLMs and generative, blah, 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 right? Right. Okay. Well, here's the challenge that a lot of organizations have. Um, There's general AI, like these LLMs that are just kind of out there, like ChatGPT that you can use, that's been trained on like everything. Yep. So it has kind of like general knowledge about everything that it has access to. Yeah. But it doesn't know gun.io or Firetail in depth, right? Yep. It doesn't know our internal documentation. It doesn't know our code. It doesn't know, you know, our messaging and our, our whatever, like the things that we've put out into the world on our blog posts and in our white papers and all that good stuff, nor does it know yours. So really what you want to do if you want to leverage these things is you need to train them with your data that is specific to your point of view. How do you do that? Well, actually, the number one way that you do that is by sending data to these models. Mm. And it turns out to be like really expensive to run a model yourself. So for smaller organizations, they're not going to do that. They're going to interact with a model that is hosted and owned by somebody else. That might be to your cloud provider, right? Like all the cloud providers have their own, you know, there's Azure AI, there's AWS uh, Bedrock, there's uh, Google Cloud Bard, right? And so they've got like a base model that you can then complement with your data to get something more meaningful to you. Well, guess what? How do you transfer that data? It's all over APIs. Mm. And then there are like, potential risk factors around, was that data allowed to be transferred to the model? Are there things that we don't want to go into the model? Are there things that we need to do to make sure that the data that we're sending to the model never gets to third party organizations or can't be extracted from any place other than us interacting with the model? Mm. And so there's like a ton of API interactions around that. And there's a lot of concern right now about like, oh, crap, my team is already sending proprietary company documents to ChatGPT. Oh, right? yeah. That's been a
0: thing. Yeah. It's like, yeah, what are we exactly. doing?
1: <laughs> yeah. So there's like this whole wave of, I think people just now waking up to the fact that APIs are actually super important mm. in data projects that they want to do to gain efficiency. Mm. Um, so that's like a big area that we're thinking a lot about and working on right now. You ask my vision or my plan or, or our ideas, like it's so focused on all this new stuff that's coming out that customers are using for the first time and the APIs associated to them and the API risk associated to them and helping them manage. Because ultimately, like what you want for, from security in general is you want security to enable things. You want right. security to kind of like make sure that the organization is managing any risks to an acceptable level so right. that the organization feels like, yeah, man, you need to go use Chat GPT. go do it. We've got these safeguards in place. We know that we're comfortable with you doing that because we have controls against whatever risks that we're worried about. Um, like that is in a best ca- best case, you know, scenario. Security enables organizations to move forward,
0: mm-hmm. and so
1: helping our customers manage that is is like a big
0: part of what goes into our vision. How do you think about orienting the roadmap to this type of use case that is not quite like there yet so you have to basically think into the future and assume that's where the puck is going yeah like how do you like practically orient your product management and your product like your engineering resources to build into something that like probabilistically y- you assume will happen but it's not yeah. yet happening at scale that's uh, it this is
1: such a great question because this is like what we live almost every day yeah I don't want to toot our own horn too big or anything like that, but I do think API security is one of the most cutting edge security use cases to solve for right now. Right. To that end, one of the things that we run into pretty often is we go talk to customers and they're like, yes, I'm worried. Yes, we're using a lot of APIs. Um, No, I don't have concrete ideas about exactly which risks I need to mitigate. And so to some extent, they come to us and they're like, well, what are you guys doing, Firetail? Like, Mm -hmm. what are you thinking? And so there's a balance where, you know, we know certain things that we've discovered through repeated interactions with customers. And we found a few things to be like, kind of universally true. One example is like, almost nobody knows all the APIs that their organization has created. So, you know, from from some perspective that, that tells you like, okay, well, one big problem is just like discovery and visibility. Great. So that one's like pretty common. But then you scratch it one level deeper and it's like, well, what are the risks around those APIs or what could they be? And then to to the point of this question, it's like, oh yeah, but then there's all this new AI stuff and we we know we're going to be using APIs with this stuff, but we don't know exactly how. So what are you going to do? Like we ask them, "Hey, what do you want us to do?" And they're like, "I don't know, protect us. What are you going to do?" Mm. Right? And so what we've tried to do, and I don't know if we've succeeded like any better or worse than anybody else at this, is we have a researcher, we have a couple people who have you know decades of experience in security and and in API development and things like that. Um, we brainstorm internally, we work with our researcher. we we continuously monitor uh, breach events looking for new learnings around like how APIs got breached or how they got abused or things like that. So we try to stay very much you know um, up to date on what's going on, mm. use all of that to inform opinions, use those opinions to create ideas about potential risks, potential attacks, et cetera. Try to design ideas about how you would mitigate them without committing to building too much first. And maybe you like show that idea to some existing customers or some new prospective customers who express a concern, test the idea with them. And if the idea itself isn't right, you might get some feedback that helps like kind of correct course a little bit. Um, Or we've also done uh, design specs where we've kind of said like, um, you know, this is how this thing is going to work. What do you think? Bounce that off of it. Again, existing or prospective customers. We've also done mockups, you know, where we say like, oh, it's going to look like this. Um, So like you, you can run this kind of experimentation and then, you know, some of it will actually build experimental code that is like not production quality, quick and dirty, just show the potential of something and then demo that to a couple of people. But it is a balancing act where you like, because you have limited resources, right? Within the development team. And sometimes you have a backlog where of things that like concrete things that need to get done. And so you got to decide like what percentage of your development team to you dedicate towards experimentation and the new use cases versus, you know, making sure that what you're already doing is like rock solid and, and scalable and ready for production. Um, that is a constant balancing act. And plus the fact that like the use cases aren't clear. And so you have to go through cycles of experimentation recognizing and not getting frustrated that like at least 50% of what you're going to do is not going to make it to prod. You know, you're going to do a lot of ideas that aren't going to be the
0: right thing. How do you, this is like maybe more of a tactical like engineering management question, but it's like, how do you get your team excited about getting something that's just like quick and dirty, not production quality code, but it takes their time to make and shift and then they'll probably make an argument like, well, if we're going to do this, we should do it right. How do you like actually navigate that conversation? Because that's a problem that I experience in our company. Like, hey, if we're going to do this, we should yeah. do it right. And it's like, well, the business case is actually, we don't know if it's right. We just need to prove that it's right. You know?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: I mean, thankfully on this one, I get to mostly defer to my
1: co-founder and let him manage okay. that. Um, what i try to do from my side cuz i do a lot of the you know customer engagement stuff and and talking to customers and so on yep. what i try to do from my side is is communicate internally who the customer is what are the challenges that they're expressing to us you know what are their what's their use case their architecture whatever and then point out to them why they're worried about a certain thing in one way or the other to, to just really make sure that they understand that there are actual customers on the other side of this conversation. And again, like whether we get it right the first time or not, it is for the purpose of serving a customer. And yeah. that's super important. Yeah. Um, so I can only convey that side of it. The day-to-day management of like, hey, don't get bummed when this experiment doesn't turn out to be the right thing or when, or, and don't take it hard when I'm asking you to build something quick and dirty instead of quote-unquote the right way. Yeah. Um, that That's my co-founder's job to manage,
0: thankfully. Cool. That's awesome. Um, what yeah. advice would you have for yourself let's say 10 years ago or if there's somebody in your shoes 10 years ago, um, you know, up-and-comer working at a startup? That sort yeah. of thing? Look, I, I co-founded a startup about just about uh, I guess 11
1: years ago. That was the uh, first second one that I co-founded, and um, and that was my first time as CEO, and I did not do great. Um, both like day to day as a CEO, but more importantly, I didn't great in managing my mental state around it. Mm. Um, I took way too much of the stress to heart, mm. and it like it affected both my mental and my physical health. I think like the main advice that I would give anybody is to try to zoom out for a second and recognize what you're doing. So what I mean by that is, and this is going to sound weird because a lot of people will say things to the contrary of what I'm about to say about like your startup being your passion and your life's project and everything. Um, Actually, a startup is a job and it is not what defines you and your success or failure as a human being. And I could not separate that at that point in time or at the level of maturity that I had at that point in time. We were a company founded by a group of individuals, funded by a group of professional investors who understood the risk, right? So they put money into us, yes, because they believed in us, but they put money into us because that was also their job. Their job is to invest in these things that are high risk, high reward. Our startup didn't really work out. We ended up selling the technology at the very end, but it was not a successful sale. It was not a good outcome. It it was, people have asked me over the years, like, oh, you had an exit? I was like, "Mm, I had an exit on paper maybe, but like there was in no way a positive financial aspect to that exit event. And so- um but I really let that consume me like both mentally and didn't consume me physically, but it did make me physically sick. Mm. And so my main advice would be to like, to recognize that that is the situation you're in. And that is what you're doing. Yeah. It's super exciting and it's challenging and all these things, but it's just a job and it doesn't define you as a human and your success or failure. So remember that and don't let any like, success or failure define you or consume you. Um, I know that's easier said than done because when you're living it day-to-day and in the moment, it's really easy to get down. This is one of the things about a startup as as you probably know yourself, the highs can be crazy high, but the lows can be really low if you let them. And
0: like trying to kind of contain that I think is is tough but important. Oh yeah, I know. I mean, I think it's like if you have if your mental state this has been my experience if your mental state is not like supremely managed and like the key focus of every day you can get buffeted by these things that are like actually not in your control and like decrease in yeah, control totally. as the company scales right so you could be totally. a, in a great mood with your spouse or significant other partner like and then the next day something bad happens at work and you're just like a, you're not a pleasant person to be around and that cascades in in your personal life in some ways you know yeah totally that's something i also had to learn the hard way like just like maintaining center at all times you know uh so okay that's awesome advice and i feel like we could spend like another hour just exclusively on like how do you manage your mental state what are some rituals that you do like to center yourself how do you detach from like almost like the mythology of Silicon Valley that is propelling yeah. you in a certain direction, you know. Uh, and I would love to have yeah. you back on and talk exclusively about that if you're down. Love to, anytime. More than happy okay. to. You you seem like somebody that's like had a lot of experiential context previous to starting a business, where whereas uh, many founders, excellent founders. It's like their first taste of adventure is in the context of a company. So like th- their yeah. entire sense of adventure is actually defined by building a company. Whereas like totally kind of like around a lot, like you yeah. sort of can see adventure in a different way. Like a company is just one yeah. context. Yeah. It's not the only context. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Where can people find you and Firetail uh, on the interweb? firetail.io
1: as we talked about we're, we're a .io. and you know for finding me probably the best places on uh, LinkedIn um, you know I'm just Jeremy Snyder it, I, I know there's like six or seven of that name but uh, if you look Jeremy Snyder firetail you will find me I promise um, if you just google Jeremy Snyder there's a chance that you'll find an indie musician who does some good stuff or you'll find a um, professor a professor in uh, health information or health sciences and public policy who's also doing some great stuff Shout out to those two Jeremy Snyders, keep the name proud, but uh, uh, just Jeremy Snyder Firetail and you will find me,
0: I promise. Cool. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you own the domain, Jeremy Snyder? Uh, I don't. The okay. musician does. The okay. musician does. And
1: good, and good on him for grabbing it before I did.
0: <laughs> You're listening to the Founder to Founder podcast, powered by Gun.io's Frontier Network. We release a new episode every Thursday morning, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you stream your music. Please leave us a review and share with your friends. You can follow us online at The Frontier Pod or drop us a line at team at gun.io to get in touch about hiring world-class tech talent.